The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. We have chosen to omit names or use sound effects in this production because the individuals discussed have not been formally arrested, charged, or accused of wrongdoing in the death of Carol Rofstead. The normal police department declined to participate in this podcast. Previously on Carol's Last Christmas. My father all along was disgusted as, you know, as time went on with the way things were going and they my mother used to say i have to keep him uh from them because you know she thought he would start yelling at them and and that kind of thing out of the blue normal police score what you might call a convenient confession A purse snatcher sitting in the county jail says he killed Carol. Within a month, bypassing a grand jury, the state's attorney charges him with murder. And he had um, psychotic reasons for wanting to go to the the higher uh, security prison, something about like cigarettes or something. The headline is, you know, innocent man could get pinned with the with the unsolved case which by the way is still unsolved some public officials including the prosecutor were were willing to sit down and you know talk to us in an interview you know this can't be him everything that he said he could have read and he's in the orange jumpsuit swaying from side to side up there in front of the judge and everything and obviously Patient. In 1975, there wasn't a whole lot in the toolkit for normal police or detectives anywhere. Think about it typewriters and carbon paper, hay phones, two way radios limited by distance, and cameras with film that needed to be developed. Fingerprints. It could take 30 to 45 days to process a fingerprint request in 1975. No small thing for a law enforcement agency. In the mid-70s, the FBI moved to digitize new and archived fingerprints to make searches easier and reduce turnaround time. This is where it all begins, right here at the crime scene. The evidence is compromised or missed at the crime scene. The the case is virtually uh, down the tubes. Everything needs to fall in line to solve these cases. You know, if you lose one piece of evidence or you lose one witness, I mean, it's hard. People die, people move, evidence gets lost. Evidence was tampered with. I know there were interviews they should have done. They didn't. And that just made you want to puke. I, I prayed to Carol tonight. I look up at the sky and I say, Carol, we're going to get this resolved. We're going to find out. We know who did it. Where other sisters I talk to, they're like, oh my God, aren't you scared? 
but they're afraid, you know, who is going to come out, find out who we are, where we are, and kill us. I mean, that's how scared my sisters are about the situation after this many years. Isn't that crazy? If I thought he was within 30 miles, I'd be a little nervous. If you betray him in some way or whatever, you're toast. From Genuine Human Productions, this is Carol's Last Christmas. I'm a criminal, so Chapter 6. Did somebody say DNA? Police have always been trained to handle evidence carefully, even in the low-tech 70s. You document the scene through photographs, note-taking, reports, measurements, and sketches. The Rofsted records show photos and sketches were made at the scene that December day. Evidence was collected, tagged, and placed in locker number seven. Anything that you feel that may have been touched by the suspect, victims, whatever, that's what we're concerned with. A bound sheet with Carol's clothes removed at the hospital was, quote, properly tagged and marked Exhibit A. Carol's purse, shoe, and her keys found about seven feet away directly in line with her body. A large piece of wood, 18 inches long, three inches wide with red stains on it. They would later refer to it as a railroad tie. You know, the word railroad tie has always bugged me because in my mind, a railroad tie is a log. It's what you put on the side of a garden to hold the dirt in, you know? My friend T.T. told me that there aren't five people in the world strong enough to wield a 300-pound railroad tie and hit someone over the head with it. If there was a way that somebody could do that, that it would have knocked her head right off her neck. Yet the term railroad tie, just like the inaccurate composite sketch, has never been clearly corrected in the investigative file. The evidence log includes a clump of leaves, also stained red. And later, a can of red Chinese paint found behind the sorority house. At the autopsy on Christmas Day, they took samples of Carol's blood and urine, head and pubic hair. Five months later, one of the first forensic questions would focus on a hair recovered from Carol's coat, and a bizarre death at a local motel. May 10th, 1976. Motel room number 17, Campus Court. Reporting officer called for the coroner and a bolt cutter. Officer cut two security chains that were holding the door closed. Officer observed a naked male face down Skin was bluish yellow. His head was dark red. Around his neck was a leather dog collar, tightly fitted, 
connected to the collar was a chain fastened to the room divider about seven feet high. The male had on women's nylons held up with a garter belt. Around his wrists were smaller leather straps. Attached to them were smaller locks. About his head was a woman's negligee. Subject was turned over. Underneath were two oranges and women's underwear. To each orange was attached a small chain, and attached to the chain were small locks. Death by strangulation. It was strange, to say the least. Detectives decided to send some of the evidence to the lab for analysis. May 25, 1976, State of Illinois Bureau of Identification data sheet. Questions to be resolved. Are the known hairs from the body the same type as the unknown hairs removed from the coat of Carol Rofstad? Hello there. Hey, George. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Good. Let's let's talk about the evidence. Somewhere in this file here, I, I have the, the two-page supplementary from the crime scene. They're talking about um, the coat, the keys, the negroid. Uh, uh, doesn't say if it's a head here or a body here or in the pocket of her coat. Um, and then it talks about plucked and cut um, a head here and so on. The crime lab found no similarities to hair from the motel man. You know, the reality is that there wasn't that much collected from the crime scene. I don't think that the police got stuff back for like at least three and maybe six months from from the crime lab. If they were in, in uh, Pekin, Illinois, there sure as heck weren't all that many horrible, violent crimes yeah. and, and, and files to be processed. An undated evidence inventory describes the red substance on the pile of leaves and the piece of wood as type AB human blood. Fewer than 4% of the population has type AB blood. And that was Carol's type. There was also a blonde hair recovered from the piece of wood, and it didn't come from Carol. The file says there were no fingerprints on her keychain or purse. That 1970s-era analysis concludes nothing of evidentiary value found on the pink half-slip she was wearing or her nylons that had been pulled down before she was found. Nothing of value. We'll come back to that. In 1977, investigators went to an apartment had vacated. A roommate, who would later talk to the police, had kicked him out. After he had taken him in because he felt sorry for him and he was down and out and everything else, he found all this horrible pornography. It sounded like it wasn't like Playboys or Penthouse or anything. It sounded like freaky stuff. So he tossed them out because of the pornography. Police took several pairs of underwear, one with a confirmed semen stain, four pairs of blue jeans, some dress pants, a green shirt and green army-style pants. A number of hairs were found in that pile of evidence, None matched Carol Rofstead. 
then again, a year and a half had passed since the crime. Hello, my name is Michael Martin, owner of the Global Polygraph Network. Welcome to our video about polygraph accuracy. There are two factors that determine the accuracy of a polygraph. The first is the technique that is used. If a validated technique is used, the accuracy for a specific issue test is better than 90%. The 90% figure is only valid for specific issue tests. That means that if you ask more than one question in a polygraph, the overall accuracy will go down. In Illinois, and most states now, polygraphs or lie detector tests are inadmissible in court. But normal police were using them in the Rofsted case, at least at the beginning. One of the sorority sisters even took a polygraph. I had been back at school, so it was in January, um, I imagine, I'm guessing. He told me it wasn't because they thought I had anything to do with it per se, but that I might be hiding something that I was afraid to say, or I was afraid to tell something or whatever. I don't know. Describe I, that for me. I mean, I, I've never taken one. I've seen them on Law and Order, but what was it like? Well, you're very uncomfortable because you're all strapped up and you're kind of nervous, which I guess if they're experts at it, they take, I'm sure they take that into consideration. I've never flunked one that I've taken, so, but I have heard, you know, the reason it's not um, allowed in a court of law is because, you know, a sociopath doesn't have emotions and so they can pass it. Um, they always ask you first, what's your name? What's your birthday? They ask you facts that they know are true, that, you, you know, the bare viable facts, you know, where do you live kind of thing. And then, you know, they'll say, do you know who killed Carol Rostad kind of thing? And, no. You know, so they've got you going on, we know this is true and an easy kill. And then they'll ask you a question that could be, you know, you could be lying about or know something about. And even if it has, I guess, a little bit, they'll say, we don't know her killer, but do you have an idea who might have killed her? You know, um, I I don't even know if that's if that thing is still available, but the records. But um, I'm sure they kept them. Well, no, I'm not so sure. Not so sure. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you recall if they were tape recording you as well? Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't recall. Did any of the other girls, did you guys confide in each other that anyone else would get polygraphed? Nope, only me. Hmm, because you were the last with her. Yeah. But the most prominent suspect was never tested. They claim they gave him a polygraph, but we find absolutely no evidence of it in the record. Interesting, because I did hear they they could they did give him a polygraph. They brought him in because we were also convinced he was, and that um, the polygraph showed you know no indication whatsoever. In fact, of more of a he was a stand-up guy. He was student council president, right? Bottom line here in in, in one sentence is <laughs> went ballistic and refused to polygraph for interview, and that's what. 
told me twice on, uh, in our our live interviews that um, that he never he never actually had a chance to to do a, an interview, much less an interrogation. When you look at those these kind of people, though, I always think that they're they may not paint in broad strokes, okay. But they will give you little hints of their behavior and things that they do in later behavior that point to it. I have always felt that whoever attacked her in summer of '74 was the same person who killed her in December of '70. In 1980, the lead detective had wanted a new expert to reevaluate all the polygraphs taken in the Rofsted case. It's unclear whether that ever happened. One of the differences between veteran big city police and small town police is that small town police departments and investigators are are generally uniformly terrified for whoever the suspect is to know that they're being investigated. My whole life, I've done things exactly the opposite. One of the things that I believe most in about criminal investigation is to shake the hell out of a tree to see what falls out of it. Presented with little or no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you appreciate our work, please consider making a donation to help. Thanks for supporting Carol and our work. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. In August of 1997, Normal Police launched a major case review. And that is the first mention in the record of the murder weapon being taken. The murder weapon that had an unidentified hair on it. We thought that was a myth. Yeah, we did. This is Genuine Human co-producer Ali Daskalopoulos. I mean, when... Normal police tells you it's securely locked up with evidence. People don't really know much about where the evidence goes. It's like, you have to take them for their word. If they say it's locked up in evidence, it's still an open case It's locked up in evidence. But we don't know what happens behind closed doors. I would love to meet the cop that gave the murder weapon away to the college professor. How do we justify that? You know, if you look at the picture of the late Carol Robstadt, and um, then, then you look at the most morbid souvenir in the history of criminal justice, um, you know, reducing it to common talk, that's horrible shit. I mean, by anybody's standard. By the 90s, forensics was pretty good. Blood was no longer needed for DNA testing. A cheek swab was suitable. 
The techniques were quicker too. Results could be had in a day. That would be the ideal thing, which would be to have the science. This is a friend who comforted Carol after that first attack in July of 74. The problem with it is, is any time that you have a crime scene, the science is there when it's fresh, but it deteriorates over time. And over 45 years, you're almost going to have no science in order to be able to put that together. Was there no science? Or did science have to catch up? In 1996, a female detective takes Carol's clothing to the Northwestern University Traffic Institute for analysis. They find a partial fingerprint in the pocket lining of her coat. Now, DNA technology had been advancing, yet the file concludes nothing of evidentiary value on her slip or pantyhose. There are references to testing and forensic reports written in 1997, 98, 99, and 2003. But in July of 2009, they found something. DNA on the hem and waistband of Carol's half-slip and on the waistband of her pantyhose, which had long been ruled out in terms of evidentiary value. A scientist from the lab in Morton, Illinois, writes to the district attorney, I was surprised that any male DNA was indicated after so many years. And again, the record reiterates that the murder weapon can't be tested. It had been left in an ISU classroom for years. Your campus newspaper, they're the only ones that actually gave an accurate description of the piece of wood. 14 to 18 inches long, approximately three and a half inches in diameter. And it looked like uh, it was a weathered piece of uh, fire log. I find that interesting because I don't know much about the decaying process, but if a tree limb is dead and laying outside for a period of time, doesn't everything decompose so that that piece of wood should have been very lightweight if it was actually weathered? Yeah, true. Well, she had a fractured skull. Not with a soft piece of wood. Well, if it was, in fact, soft. Yeah. By 2010, we had next-generation sequencing, a technique so good it would be like taking a book, cutting out sections of sentences, and then using the computer to reassemble all of it correctly. And here we are, 10 years beyond that. The family has been told they'll look into the DNA again. What she's going to do is meet with the lab people, the technical people. She is the latest normal police detective put in charge of the case in the summer of 2022. So they're going to go over all this stuff and find out what, what more they would need to do something more. They're going to talk about whether or not it's, even though it's compromised, 
Could they get something off of the murder weapon? Could they get something off of her keys? So they're going to go review all this with the lab people. And they're going to meet on Tuesday. The case records confirm there are DNA samples on file from three suspects. From his cast-off clothing in 1976, and a discarded cup and straw the FBI lifted from a fast food restaurant in California. Also left a coffee cup on a Tennessee golf course. State agents with the Bureau of Investigation grabbed beer cans and tissues from his garbage. And a blood sample from who you remember died in a car wreck in 2001. Nothing is impossible. Um, I think obviously shining a light on something does does create more opportunities. DNA, I'm skeptical. I should say that anything could get done. I'm certainly he's not going to do a confession. It's not going to be a clean thing if unless you have some like somebody like the confession to tell somebody I got away with murder. The the only other thing that that could happen and and that may happen is that somebody that's afraid afraid of is saying I just can't live with myself anymore. I've got to tell tell you what he told me, and he somebody comes forward like that. And I think there's a chance of that. That very thing happened in a Bloomington lawyer's office in September of 2017. The conversation is recorded and has been stored in Evidence Locker 21. A man who had shared an apartment with started to recall something very uncomfortable. Here's George telling the story. So in 2017, I went to my lawyer and I said, hey, um, I used to have amnesia. Amnesia. <laughs> but I don't, guess what? I don't have amnesia anymore. And I remember some stuff. What I remember is that um, two guys took me to um, the cellar and said, peek in there and see if, if the waitress is in there. Because... We want to have sex with her to teach her a lesson. And so I did that and I went in there and then I rethought the whole thing. And I said, I'm going home. I don't want to have sex with somebody that doesn't want to have sex. We know that Carol went to the cellar and some friends say she occasionally worked there. And so see you later and he's gone. Then he he goes on to say that all of this the stalking party to the cellar took place um, during during Christmas break uh, a couple of days before Carol got murdered. Well, the only person on earth that I could think of that would want to teach Carol a lesson would be. All of these things that we have talked about in terms of motive and accessibility uh, would lead one to logically think that he was talking about 
The only purpose that I can imagine in a million years to come to the police with the entire story about the amnesia and all these other aspects is because he's involving for the first time. Then he does a quick 180 and he whips out the names of two other guys that were involved in the student senate and none of it related to anyone, either of those people. Uh, I should also add that the, the police report uh, says that he was sobbing and crying during the course of this conversation. Some people are just not cut out for any of this. I'm assuming that he's just a, a kind, gentle little guy who is scared to death of this whole thing. It had taken him 40 years to get up the nerve to come back and tell the story about And when he got toward the end, he, he backed out and removed from the situation. But then he said something that should have been a huge alarm to the police detective present. He said that a couple of days after all of this um, and so on, that the guy returned to pick up his aquarium and he talked to him at that point. Well, the two guys, the two guys that he named from the student senate sure as, as F did not have their aquarium at his house. So the only one that would have had an aquarium would have been because that was his roommate. I, I would have said, um, I know you're not telling me the truth about identifying the people here. A stranger didn't come into your house to get an aquarium a couple of days after Carol got killed. If you're lying about that, how do we know you're telling the truth about other things? We know you're talking about was the one with the motive. Had the reason to get even and rape somebody. Well, obviously it was because he was the roommate. Nobody else would have had an aquarium there. Presented with little to no interruption, Carol's Last Christmas has been an expensive endeavor. If you enjoy our work, please consider making a donation to help. Visit patreon.com forward slash Carol's Last Christmas. Criminal interrogation is the peace officer's oldest tool. The man who asks the questions has one of the most exacting jobs confronting the law enforcement officer of today. The interrogator must be a salesman and a good one. He must employ human understanding. He must be able to recognize and interpret the various expressions of emotion. He must cry and laugh. He must get tough. And he must show understanding. The way that most homicides are solved, in my world on the streets of Chicago, and in my lesser world as a cold case guy, Somebody gets shot and killed and or stabbed and killed or however. And there are always people that know or suspect what happened. 
And the whole thing about interrogation as a police detective is to figure out what motivates your potential information source and then give them a reason specific to whatever needs that's going to fill for that person. There are many approaches to use in interrogation. It's up to the officer to select the right one. If one doesn't work, try another. You tell me what happened, whisper in my ear, tell me what happened, and I'll do everything I can to keep your name out of this. I won't put your name on paper. But if if it looks like the only way I can solve the case is for you to front off, I'll come back and ask you if you're willing to do that. But in the meantime, if you just tug my coat, whisper in my ear and tell me what the hell happened, I'll I'll try to solve the case based upon your information. This case was this case was absolutely handed to the police to be solved. When people refuse when you know somebody knows something and they refuse to talk, what happens is they convene a special grand jury. And the special grand jury is an investigative body. And then what they do is they issue uh, they issue grand jury subpoenas to people to testify. Then when they arrive on the day that they're answering to their their subpoena, they're informed that they are being be, being given immunity from prosecution, which means that anything that they divulge before the grand jury cannot be used against them, and they they are bulletproof in terms of being charged with anything to do with the crime. But the flip side of that is that if you lie to a special grand jury and there's evidence of, of the lack of truthfulness, then you can be in, held in contempt of the grand jury and you can be put in jail for an indefinite period of time for contempt of the grand jury. You know, if 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 somebody uh, did a presto zippo to, to George today, and I was the uh, prosecutor in, in uh, McLean County, Illinois, I would convene a grand jury and say, uh, you are about to be subpoenaed. It will get you served whether you're hiding or not. And then you're going to have to come to normal Illinois and you're going to have to either tell the truth or lie to a grand jury. If you tell the truth, you can go home. And if you lie, you're going to jail. We would have had that guy in handcuffs in an interrogation room drinking bad hot coffee in 20 minutes. The case could have been solved from Jump Street. Questions without answers are pointless. Anyone can ask questions. But the criminal never answers until a reason for answering builds up within himself. It was it was worse than for execution of interrogation. Nobody ever got interrogated. Pure and simple. And it's 46 years later. Next time on Carol's Last Christmas. He was reeling me in after the the murder, after Rothstead. They came to my, my house and he says, we, we know that you dress in guys' clothing. We understand how things can happen, but are you the other guy?
Carol's Last Christmas is a genuine human production reported from interviews with friends, family, and experts, and based on official records obtained through the Freedom of Information Act. Lead investigator George Seibel, Chicago Police Department, retired. Investigator and co-producer, Alexandra Duskalopoulos. Investigator, writer, and narrator, Demetria Kaladinos. Voiceover recreation, Justin Holder. Audio mastering and consultation by Paul Gibson. Music provided rights-free by Artlist, Blue Dot Sessions, Motion Array, and Storyblocks. Original music by Verlin Thompson. Graphics by Orlando Rodriguez and Thalia Kaladimos. Website and promotional material, Thalia Kaladimos and Jim Champis. Our theme song is Criminal by Binge Heard, featuring Katrina Stone, courtesy of Artlist. Carol's Last Christmas is distributed by Radio Misfits. Our sincere thanks to the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press for pre-publication review, and to those who knew and loved Carol and generously shared their stories.